Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Nutshell Politics. I'm your host, Justin Kinney, and I'm excited to be here with you guys. There's been a lot going on in the world recently in international politics, and in particular, I wanted to talk a little bit today about the NATO meeting, the NATO summit that just took place in Brussels, Belgium. Normally, these meetings are a really good chance for a group of nations that are all allied together militarily to talk about how strong their alliance is, to deal with any new issues, new members that want to try to join, make a lot of new pledges to work together. But this year is a little bit different because you have the introduction of Donald Trump. Now, this is not Trump's first summit. He did attend one last year, but this one is particularly notable because some of his unpredictability has come to play, has come to light recently. In particular, he has called NATO obsolete and has been very critical of the organization as a whole and several member nations within it. But before I get too far down that road, I want to talk a little bit about the history of NATO, kind of what its purpose was originally when it was founded and what it's become in recent years. So NATO stands for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and it was created in 1949 by the United States, Canada, as well as several Western European nations. And the original purpose here was to provide something called collective security against the Soviet Union. Now, collective security is this idea that if one nation in this alliance is attacked or threatened, that can be considered a threat against all of them. And so an, an attack against one is viewed as an attack against all and will lead to other nations stepping up to help defend. And especially with this alliance, it's been extended to what's called a nuclear umbrella. And a nuclear umbrella is the same concept, but in this case, it would mean that an attack on one would cause a retaliation by the United States in a nuclear capacity with a nuclear weapon, nuclear missile, that sort of thing. Now, NATO was the first peacetime military alliance that the United States ever entered into outside of the Western Hemisphere, and it was originally built after the destruction of the Second World War because the nations in Europe were really struggling at the time to rebuild their economies. They were struggling to keep their borders safe, and there was a lot of devastation just across the whole continent, a lot of death, huge populations had been killed, and a lot of the land and buildings were just demolished. And the United States in particular saw this as dangerous, not only for them and for Europe, but for the world as a whole, because they saw an economically strong, militarily strong, resurgent Europe as being vital to the prevention of communist expansion across that, that region. And the idea here is that at the time, the United States was engaged in a grand strategy that they called containment. And what they were trying to do here was essentially contain the Soviet communist threat. At the time, there was this big rivalry between the communist countries and the Western democratic countries. And the West basically believed that if they contained communism and prevented it from spreading, it would eventually destroy itself from the inside out. And so they engaged in this idea of containment. But to do so, you needed strong allies around the world to help in this capacity. And this is why the United States gets involved in countries like Vietnam, Korea, which you wouldn't think they would necessarily need to at the time, but they saw this as part of the an extension of that policy of containment. This is strategy of containment. And so the United States believed that Europe needed to be strengthened, you needed to be protected in order to help prevent the Soviets from extending their reach into Europe. And so this idea of a collective security alliance came about and as the Cold War continued, this became the nuclear umbrella. And in response to this, you actually saw something called the Warsaw Treaty Organization, sometimes called the Warsaw Pact, enter into effect. And this was essentially the rest of the world, the Soviet Union, 
West Germany, some of the Soviet satellite states of Eastern Europe, became a member of this other opposing collective security organization. But eventually, we obviously know the Soviet Union does fall. This, this Warsaw Pact falls apart in 1991. It essentially dissolves at that time. And many of those former Warsaw Pact members start to join NATO. NATO actually goes well beyond its original intention. There was some speculation that when the Soviet Union fell, NATO would also fall apart. There was no more common enemy to bind them together. It was really only put into place to contain the Soviet Union. Without that threat, how is it going to continue? But it has somehow managed to persist. You know, and it still to this day remains the largest peacetime military alliance in the entire world. And so there's some questions as to, well, how exactly did they manage to do this? And mostly this is because NATO expanded its scope. It reached out to start to get involved in countries that may have been in, uh, engaged in civil wars, seeing if they could help mitigate some of those consequences, any sort of humanitarian crisis, human rights violations. They started getting involved in those sorts of things as well. And to the, today, NATO has expanded. There's 29 countries involved in it right now as, as member states. There are several others that have been applying and trying to get uh, accepted into this elite club. And they've been expanding their involvement around the world. So it's no longer just focused on a one country mission of containment, but now it's all about global security. And this gets back to the idea of collective security that a safe region, one safe region in the world is better for overall world global security. A threat to one is a, is a threat to all. Now, there are some concerns here. I'm not going to go too far into this. This may be in a whole nother episode about the strength of some of these organizations, whether or not a country actually would step up if there was an attack on one, it really hasn't been tested so far. And there have been multiple instances of these international organizations like the UN and NATO that have really failed to help much in some of these civil situations. So there are some questions as to whether or not these organizations are really as powerful as they seem to be. But for whatever reason, NATO has managed to persist long beyond what it should have theoretically when its primary target vanished and there was no longer an external threat binding them together. And it's managed to last now close to 70 years. But with that little bit of history behind us, let's jump forward in time to this year. There was a NATO meeting in Brussels. Now, these summits are not regular meetings. They don't take place on a sort of yearly basis or whatever. They usually only crop up when there's some issue to discuss, some sort of crux in or junction in their overall mission. A new member wants to be added. Some big vote needs to take place. But you do still tend to see them about every one to two years, give or take. There was one last year as well, also in Brussels. It does rotate around. It's not always there. I think it was in Poland the year before that or two years before that. But this year we have Donald Trump getting involved. And as I mentioned, this is not Trump's first rodeo with the summit, but this is probably the first one since he really went on a, an offensive against the institutions. And in particular, he's launched several shots at Germany. Now, he's picked on Germany a lot recently for a variety of reasons. In this meeting, he dispensed with niceties right off the bat. He launched some pretty heavy artillery towards Germany, basically calling them totally controlled, a captive of Russia. Those are exact quotes, by the way, totally controlled, a captive of Russia. And he did this because Germany recently signed a massive deal, an oil and gas deal to build a pipeline to Russia. And so they made this deal with Putin. It's a Nord Stream 2 pipeline. This is the second pipeline of natural gas that they have to Russia. Uh, technically, this is a private pipeline, so there are some questions about whether or not the government should have intervened. Uh, they did actually give approval for it, but this is a private commercial deal, and so the government has made this argument that they were just trying to stay out of this private business. 
Now, Donald Trump's comments were very scathing. He essentially accused Germany of skipping out on paying their share in NATO defense. He said the United States is paying to defend Germany as Germany cops these deals to make Russia richer. Trump also hinted that this deal might not totally be above board. Uh, the reason for that is that one of the former German chancellors, a man by the name of Gerhard Schroeder, is a top executive at this Russian government-controlled pipeline company. And this is the company that's putting in the pipeline. Uh, so Trump's kind of hinted that there may be some behind-the-scenes dealings there. Uh, this was all said on camera, very publicly. And while Trump is not the first president to have this problem, he's not, we're not even the only country that's had this problem with Germany, he is the first to really come out and say it like this, to say it so harshly and severely. It's actually it's kind of extraordinary when you think about it that you know he's being so forceful and scathing, just demeaning at times. It's uh, almost insulting to the point. But Trump does have some points here. And I want to kind of touch on why he's doing this, what his reasoning is. We'll get into some of the things he gets wrong as well. But the basis for his argument gets at this idea that the United States spends far more on NATO and far more on individual defense than any other country. And the alliance arguably benefits Europe way more than it does the United States which many have argued over the years, this is not just a Trump thing, many have argued this, that it's not particularly fair. Now, Trump did tweet as much just recently, that I think about a week ago, and he's basically making the argument that Europe, in particular Germany, is taking advantage of the U.S. military and the U.S. strength while offering, this is a Trump argument, offering unfair trade deals to U.S. businesses. He thinks Europe is being unfair in terms of economics while using and manipulating the U.S. military because of how much more we pay for collective security and global security. Uh, Trump has actually even written personal letters to many of these NATO state leaders, arguing that they need to live up to their end of the bargain, uh, raise their support for NATO, raise their support for collective security around the world. And he's been particularly pointed towards Germany. And one of the things that Trump has said several times in these comments is he references this 2%. And I, I wanna touch on what, what he means by that and what that 2% is. In 2014, there was a, another summit, and all of the countries of NATO agreed to make a rule that each country would raise their defense spending to a minimum 2% level. Now, prior to this, it was kind of an unspoken expectation, but it was never a rule. It was more of a, a guideline, like, like the Pirate Code and Pirates of the Caribbean. It's a guideline, not really a rule. But in 2014, they made it official. And they agreed to raise that spending by 2024 to 2% of their overall GDP. That's gross domestic product. Now, Trump has, in recent comments, said he wants that raised to 4%. And he wants them to raise their spending immediately and not 2024. But this 2% in 2024 is what he's referencing when he talks about this. Now, focus back on Germany for a minute. Part of the reason he goes after Germany so harshly, much more so than some of the others, is that Germany does only spend about 1.2 to 1.3% of its GDP on defense. It's not uh, one of the higher ones. There's only, I believe, five countries in NATO that have reached that 2% mark. You have the United States, Greece, the UK, Estonia, and Latvia. There's a few others like Poland, Lithuania, and Romania who are close, but pretty far down the list, you, you find Germany. And on top of this, Germany has this energy relationship, this natural gas and oil pipeline with Russia, and they're much closer to the Russians in terms of their overall relationship than most of Europe. And this makes sense because they had a relationship with the Soviet Union, if you remember the Berlin Wall and all that stuff. 
you had East and West Germany. And so Germany was split. And this relationship with the Soviets has still had some influence carrying over to today, which explains some of their closer relationship. I should mention that this close relationship between Germany and Russia is not just a Trump thing. It's not just a United States thing. Much of Eastern Europe has had these concerns for a while now as well, especially in the Baltic region and in Poland, because these states tend to fear that these type of energy deals would cut them off from their own energy supplies. Now, all of our allies have been raising defense spending of late. Most of them do still fall short. As I mentioned, there's only five that have reached it. There's a total of eight that are currently on pace to reach that 2% level by the end of this year. The United States, I'll go ahead and throw this out there, is at 3.5%. We are the highest by far. Greece is the next closest at about 22 to 2.3%. But the United States actually was much higher. And interestingly, in 2010, we were up closer to 5%. And mostly through the Obama administration, we have lowered that further and further. And now we're only about 3.5%. Still well over a percent higher than any other country in NATO. But we are kind of trending downward, whereas most of the other countries in NATO are trending upward. Now, I should mention that while a lot of these comments by Trump do have this basis in some of these real numbers that I've been quoting, but he has said some things that are incorrect, and I want to make sure we clarify what those are as well. First, he has implied that the 2% that states are supposed to raise their spending to goes towards some sort of NATO fund, or you know they're funding NATO through this. And that's not correct. Uh, the 2% is about individual defense spending within that state. All these states pledge to raise their personal state funding to that 2% level. It doesn't go into some sort of joint NATO account like he's kind of implied. Further, Trump went on to criticize states saying that they essentially owed money to the United States and to NATO as a sort of like back pay because they haven't reached that 2% yet. And I want to point out this is also very incorrect. The agreement that was in 2014, again, this is more of a binding agreement than the implied guideline from before, but in 2014, they made this deal and gave themselves a 10-year window until 2024. And we're only four years into that 10-year window. There's still six years to go until they have to reach that, that uh, minimum level. And so there is no real back pay that's owed on this. Now, you could make the argument the United States has been funding this at much higher levels for a long, long time, and we're getting less out of it relative to the amount we put in. Maybe that's what Trump is trying to hint at by saying that they owe back pay. But legally speaking and institutionally speaking, they, they don't. Uh, they have still another six years to reach that minimum level. Now, all of that said, I do think Trump is right to demand more of our NATO allies. Our subsidizing of NATO has been substantial, overwhelming even, especially when you go back early years when we were over 5%. We essentially provide much more of the security, especially with our nuclear weapons, that most of the states in Europe and in NATO don't provide. And so Europe gets a lot more benefit from this than the United States, but the United States is paying a lot more for it. Now, of course, the whole concept of collective security is that a secure Europe, a safe Europe, peaceful Europe is in U.S. interests. And so we're still pursuing U.S. interest. The reason we're even paying at all is because we believe Europe being peaceful is good for the world and is good for the United States. So Trump is right here that other members in NATO both could do more and should be doing more. And I certainly hope we're moving that direction. As I mentioned, all of them are moving upward and moving towards that 2% level that has been committed, but there's still a ways to go there. And I think that that's where a lot of Trump's criticism is coming from. 
That said, I, I'm not sure this was the right way to go about it or the right time. He was on camera for a lot of these comments, especially the ones directed at Germany. They came across as quite scathing, and there was some over-exaggeration with words like captive and controlled. The relationship between Germany and Russia is admittedly a little close for my comfort, but I don't think that necessarily means that Berlin is being controlled by Moscow or anything. And I would worry that this creates a bit of a schism in NATO. This is the largest military alliance in the world. And even if you believe that NATO is largely impotent and not as powerful as people make it out to be, there's not a whole lot of incentive right now for us to create a split there, at least in my opinion. I do think this is something to keep an eye on because if states still continue to not uphold their end of this bargain, especially as we near 2024, maybe we can revisit that. But the idea of... A nuclear umbrella, the idea of collective security. These are, are strong theories in political science, and they're ones that I think hold some level of relevance even today. And that's coming from someone who tends to be what's considered a political realist, not an institutionalist. I, I'm not a big fan of some of these institutions. I think you give up a lot of sovereignty and don't get a whole lot out of them. But I also don't see much incentive in breaking away from some of these institutions right now. All that's going to do is create some bad feelings and so while I do think Trump has the right idea when it comes to these criticisms of NATO and the spending habits, I think his execution of them leaves a lot to be desired. And unfortunately, this is kind of where I fall on a lot of Trump things. Frequently, the rollout of some of his plans is very poor. I think that a lot of this comes from him not being a politician. There's a lot of benefit in that. I'm not trying to suggest that he should become just like everybody else. And in fact, that's partly why a lot of his supporters like him. But there are certain issues and certain venues where a, a certain level of political acumen and political tact that are required that I don't really see Trump having. Now, it does sound like the private meetings, there was a dinner one night, those things went a lot better. Several of the other state leaders have gone on record in saying that you know, Trump's comments were taken out of context or that things went a lot better. He was much calmer, more cooperative behind the scenes. And that I tend to believe that a lot of this posturing that he does is more for the media's benefit. One of the great joys in his life appears to be driving the media crazy. So I do think that a lot of the criticism that he's gotten in the media for some of these comments is overblown. I think they've taken it and blown it way out of proportion. I agree that his execution of these criticisms wasn't great. But at the end of the day, I, I do think there are some real bases for why he says what he says and what those criticisms are. Now, we do know that Trump met with British Prime Minister Theresa May. He also met with Queen Elizabeth II uh, this past weekend. And there were a lot of protests that took place there. I do think that relationship with the UK is one that Trump needs to be a lot more careful with. The UK is one of our best allies in the world. Uh, they have been for a long time. And it would behoove Trump to maintain a good working relationship with the British going forward. Uh, we also know that Trump is off to Helsinki uh, today to meet with Vladimir Putin. He's meeting with him one-on-one -on -one in Finland to, in his words, hold Russia accountable for its malign activities. This includes things like the election meddling, the military being in Ukraine and Crimea, uh, arms control, the Syrian war. And this has become even more important with the indictment of those 12 Russian special agents just recently for election meddling. They were apparently getting involved with DNC, hacking the DNC. And I really think Donald Trump needs to go in ready to, to take Putin to task on this. I'm a big believer that you need open lines of communication with even dictators, which is why I support Trump meeting with people like Putin and even Kim Jong-un. 
But this infringement on another country's sovereignty is, is completely unacceptable, and Putin needs to be called out on this. As I said, this infringes on state sovereignty, which is one of the most important ideas in all of international relations. It's actually one of the foundations for how we govern the world. It's also how institutions like the United Nations and NATO operate by respecting state sovereignty. And when a country like Russia doesn't do that, I do think Trump needs to step in and hold him accountable for this. And so I, I hope that's something that does come up. Obviously, anytime a United States leader meets with, with Vladimir Putin, that's a meeting that needs to be taken very, very cautiously. Putin is ex-KGB. He is a master manipulator. He sees himself as kind of the chess grandmaster, moving around his pawns, manipulating people with flattery. So as long as Trump goes into the meeting, understanding that, ready for it, I think he'll be okay. But it is something he needs to be very careful about in this meeting today. So if you are listening to this on Monday, keep a very close eye on what happens with this meeting in Helsinki. There's a lot of things that can and should be talked about, and we'll have to just watch it going forward. Now, before I end this episode, I do want to take a couple minutes and talk about some of the other things that took place at NATO, just run through some of the bullet points, because there's some important issues here that may impact NATO going forward. First is that they established two new military headquarters. One of these is designated to help secure the Atlantic, the Atlantic Ocean, and trade that goes across there. The other is to help speed up military movement across Europe, so across state borders and across that continent. They also have bolstered or agreed to bolster NATO missions in Iraq and Afghanistan, fighting terrorism in those two countries as well as other parts of the Middle East. And probably most importantly with this meeting with Putin coming, coming up today is that NATO reconfirmed their tough stance on Russia's annexation of Crimea. And they further pledged to press Moscow and the Kremlin through sanctions and other forms of diplomacy to return Crimea to Ukraine. And these are deals that the United States and Donald Trump signed off on. So you can expect this to come up when Donald Trump meets with Putin today. Further, NATO also began the process of allowing Macedonia to join as a new state. They would be member number 30. But there is a caveat here. They need to change their name to North Macedonia. This is kind of a weird little point of contention, but it's, it's an issue for the Greeks because many Greeks in Greece identify as Macedonian and they want to be able to make that distinction. So if Macedonia agrees to change their name, it's pretty likely that Macedonia will end up becoming member number 30 in NATO. And NATO also left the door open for other countries to join too, if they make some political reforms. And these countries would include the country of Georgia, Ukraine, Bosnia and Herzegovina, and some others as well. Which means that we could see NATO continue to expand even further in upcoming years. But all in all, I am kind of encouraged about this summit as a whole, even with Donald Trump's comments. I think the basis for his arguments is good. I think his execution is poor, but if the reports that some of these behind the scenes meetings went much better are true, I think you can kind of view some of these public statements as much more plain to the media than anything else. But either way, I think there's a lot of things that came out of this that need to be watched very closely going forward, especially our relationship with Germany, relationship with the UK, and this meeting with Putin and the relationship with Russia going forward. But on that note, I think I'm going to go ahead and end the episode there. As always, find me on Twitter, Justin R underscore Kinney. Follow me there. Hit me up on Facebook, J. Robert Kinney. That's the name I write my fiction novels under. And make sure you subscribe to this podcast. So go ahead and hit that subscribe button. If you're interested in supporting me, this podcast, or advertising on it, hit me up. I'd love to talk to you more about that possibility. 
But until next time, keep watching and listening to the news. And I look forward to being with you next time here on Nutshell Politics. And with that, I'm out in three, two, one. Thanks, guys. Yeah.